We're back to the Neil Haley Show. And, you know, when we talk about specific stories uh, of animal cruelty and different things, especially during COVID-19, uh, we need to talk to somebody that really understands what's happening now. So I'm excited to welcome the program, the PETA's Senior Vice President, Daphna Nakminovich. Uh, Daphna, thanks for calling. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me, Neil. Uh, you know, and it's it's. do you agree with me before we even get into the film that this is just a horrible time for lots of people that can be abused and animals are definitely one of them? Absolutely. Yeah, this has been a difficult time. It's been a difficult year and um, we experience a high call volume on any given day. But most certainly with COVID-19, we have seen an increase in calls for help from people. Because there there is time to be frustrated and who you're going to take it out on. You're going to take it out on your animals. You're going to take it out of somebody else with the increase of alcoholism, drug abuse, and all these different things. And animals are the first people that, hey, they're going to comfort us. But ultimately, at times, we take things out on people that are not able to defend themselves. That's right. That's exactly right. And the other thing that we're seeing, of course, is that when people have fallen on hard times, animals are at the bottom of the list as far as their needs, even down to the very basic necessity of life, you know, food. Exactly. And it's sad. And we're not, you know, reporting these things and seeing what's happening in that area. So let, you know, we'll take it to a different note. We're talking about today breaking the chain that is now available on Amazon that Angelica Houston uh, was the uh, executive producer for. So kind of explain to us this film, this documentary. Sure. So this documentary is, is a, it's just over an hour and it follows PETA's field workers who go out every single day, 365 days a year to render aid to animals who are relegated to the outdoors, basically. So PETA's headquarters are located in Norfolk, Virginia, and just a stone's throw from our headquarters is um, the Virginia North Carolina border and across the border along the border there are some poverty pockets but over the border in North Carolina especially we visit some extremely underserved low-income counties that have very few if any services for animals uh, one county we serve doesn't even have a vet clinic in it so we go out and we this really became this program was born out of necessity and the film follows our field workers as they visit some of these animals most of these animals are dogs who spend their entire lives trapped at the end of a chain or confined to a very small pen they all live outdoors 24 7 and they're not considered members of the family so we we try to educate people about you know, why it's important to keep animals inside and what animals can offer and what our duty is to them. Uh, and we also offer many, many free services to improve the quality of life for the animals we visit. Ultimately, our goal, of course, is to have these animals live inside or come with us so that we can try to find them a new home where they can live inside. Uh, but we also end up giving away dog houses, food, oh, insulating straw bedding in, in winter. And so the film follows some of these stories that, you know, sometimes when you hear a big number, um, you lose the individuals that are included in that number. And this film will have you meet some of those individuals. Uh, you know, the millions and millions of dogs we have in this country who you know, are basically treated like cheap alarm systems. So it's a it's an eye-opening film. It's important for people to watch because 
this stuff is out there and it's not just out there in virginia or north carolina we work nationally we just uh happen to be doing this field program locally but nationally we have an emergency response team that gets calls about chained or penned dogs especially during weather extremes every you know every time there is a weather emergency or you know if if they're tangled and they can't reach their shelter their water if they even have any so this is a national epidemic and we want this film to serve as a wake up call for the people who keep their animals like that but also for the people who know that it's wrong and can make a phone call that can save a life and that's in you you're so right about that and to so that people say okay if they're neighbor and they're seeing an animal struggle they're going to make that phone call they're going to say you know and i'm going to pick up the phone or even if they're if you know we talk about lack of food that you're going to contact PETA and say you know i really can't take care of this animal anymore before they get really interested you know we are having trouble eating and we really can't feed that animal or it's outside in the extreme cold and we just don't have any place in our house to keep that animal they need to respond and not worry there's repercussions because at least that animal will be saved. Absolutely. 100%. And, and I think what we've seen, and I've, you know, this is my 24th year at PETA and I've definitely seen progress in terms of people being willing to get involved. I think social media has helped to call attention to specific situations, but I can't emphasize enough, you know, if you see something, say something, because you may save a life, an animal, you may make a difference of life or death for one animal. And that's a big difference, you know, and it's it's easy to make a phone call and it's easy to watch this film. You know, I do, I did want to mention, I, you know, I've had people say, but I don't want to, you know, it's going to break my heart and right. it's so sad. Yes, it's sad. Yes, it's heartbreaking, but it, you know, watching this film is nothing compared to being chained outside oh, in no. the freezing yeah. cold. So, you know, if, if, if people can spend the hour just watching it, they may learn how they can help and make the world a better place for these for these animals. And that's what we want the film to do. And the big I think one of the goals of PETA compared to maybe some other animal organizations is euthanasia. You really don't want to euthanize these animals. And that's just so the and th- this is part of PETA is saving lives animal lives. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I will say, you know, and this is part of why this is so important is that a lot of the the animals that we do end up taking in have to be euthanized for humane reasons or oh because they're gosh. very dangerous and so and and this is described in the film and i i do want people to know you know one of the things that is very unique to PETA that we're trying to get other programs in the country to continue being what's called open admission and that means you don't turn an animal away just because that animal may be a euthanasia statistic we take in animals who are, you know, so, so damaged and, and broken. Um, and so, and actually a lot, one of the things that we offer to the public is a euthanasia service because we, especially now during COVID, we saw that people can't afford the fee at a veterinary clinic yeah, to have their can. animals euthanized. Right. Oh um, or, you know, one of the other things we saw with COVID is that people were not being allowed to stay with their animals for the procedure. And, we, you know, that's very difficult because, you know, I'm, I'm actually having issues with one of my little dogs and it goes, you know, you go crazy taking your animal to the vet and sitting in the parking lot waiting because you basically hand your animal to to a stranger (laughs) and then you don't get to talk to the vet except for on the phone. And it's a difficult time for, for everybody. So, so we, you know, when, 
it's time for an animal to move on. We do allow people to stay. And one of the things that we saw with COVID is people who maybe would have been able to afford the actual procedure of the vet came to us because they wanted to be with their animal. I think the veterinary um, clinics that I know of now are have at least made modifications so that they can allow people to stay. It's just really important for the animal to have their parents there, you know, during their last moments. See, I think that's a, I think that's a, just a, a great point to make. And what's feedback of the film so far since it's been released? So uh, it's been, the feedback has been very positive. You know, we, um, we want the film just became free on prime video. It, it, uh, just, I think on November 9th. And so we're seeing a lot more downloads and good positive reviews. Um, we wanted to get out there. And so that's the, the main thing right now is just to get people to watch it. So it's, it's free on prime videos you mentioned, and then it's on various other platforms for 99 cents. But I think most of us have Amazon prime these days. So. Exactly. If you don't have Amazon <laughs> prime, that's crazy. And okay. I yeah. need, I need a sponsorship for that. Come on guys. No, but <laughs> seriously, but no, I, everyone has Amazon prime or mostly everyone could share and to get to see the story. And how about working with Angelica? Was that awesome too, to have Well, I, you know, to, truth be told, I didn't personally get to work with her, but I, I did get to hear some of her feedback, and that was very, very special. Absolutely. You know, it's, 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 just, it's part of uh, how important an organization like PETA is. People also need to, you need to raise money all the time, right? It's not, oh, yes, yeah. yeah, so tell us specifically <laughs> how people can donate to PETA. We all know, go to Amazon right now and, 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 and watch Breaking the Chain. That's very simple. I don't think anyone needs a go to Amazon. I think everyone knows Amazon. But what about yeah. for helping PETA? What can we do? Yeah, so actually you can, you know, you can support us just by going to PETA.org. You can support um, our local efforts if that's what touches your heart. You can most certainly earmark your donations for our local program. It's called Community Animal Project. And part of that is also a fleet of mobile spay-neuter veterinary clinics, which is part of how we help in these communities, is we actually have clinics on wheels that go into these low-income communities and offer totally free spay-neuter surgeries and other veterinary services to prevent animals from reproducing and contributing to the overpopulation and homelessness crisis and also just suffering from basic you know, basic upper respiratory infections, skin infections, things like that to make them more comfortable. And it's really easy to support our program by just going to PETA.org. And you can also visit BreakingTheChainFilm.com to learn more about the program, um, see the trailer and just, you know, go from there. But we, we really appreciate that. And again, you know, our, our local program costs us, a, you know, it's over a million dollars a year to just try to help these animals survive weather extremes and have some minimal quality of life and i i will say one of the very bright spots and all that is that we do get a lot of these animals off of the chain so Good. while we don't get every single one we we are the most persistent group of people you will ever meet and you know we will keep trying and keep trying and a lot of times you know the person moves or the person just you know gets worn down and, <laughs> and gives us <laughs> yeah. So, um, so, and you can see that in the film. All right. So check out breaking the chain now available on Amazon and, uh, and other streaming networks, uh, but free on Amazon prime and Daphna, I appreciate you stopping by and, uh, continued, 
uh, great work you do with PETA and any other types of projects, please reach out to me and you're welcome to come on the show again. Thank you so much, Neil. I so appreciate that. All right. Take care now. Appreciate it. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You'll listen to Neil Haley's show and we'll be back in just a moment. Neil Haley here. Lensec has been a sponsor of the Neil Haley Show and Total Media Network for around a year and a half. And I wanted to tell you a little bit about Lensec. Lensec has been a pioneer in IP security videos since 1998. The company is a trusted security partner with experience around the world. Lensec has experience working with customers in higher education, K-12 education, government, public safety, critical infrastructure, healthcare, commercial, and more. The physical security experts at Lensec help customers develop enterprise solutions for their complex physical security projects using our flagship software, Perspective VMS. Lensec's enterprise-level video management software, Perspective VMS, is a browser-based software that streams and captures IP security camera video. The latest version of PVMS uses HTML5 interactive features in a thin client application that is designed to provide real-time situational awareness. Access control and other advanced features are integrated into a unified security platform, creating an ability to track behavior and movement while monitoring the live or recorded video. For more information, please visit Lensec.com. And now back to the show. back to the Neil Haley show and you know when you talk about uh, I guess cornerstones that people talk about all the time they talk about a world almanac and uh, as a former teacher I remember always talking about you know almanacs and specific things but this is the one that you know hey it's the world and it's very interesting this year's edition how it's a little different some of the of some of the facts and different things that are in there so I'm excited to welcome the program Sarah Jansen she's the editor of the World Almanac uh, Sarah thanks for calling how are you thank you so much for having me I'm doing great how are you good good so when you think about I guess even before you started working uh, the World Almanac working for the world what comes to mind well, the World Almanac every year is trying to do two main things. We're trying to cover everything that happened in the past year and then also be a great resource for the year ahead. So that includes covering you know, news events, but also making sure that every single topic under the sun is addressed in some way or shape or measure in the World Almanac. Now, when you, but Sarah, before you got involved as an editor of the World Almanac stuff, what, was your, what did you think about when you, you first thought of World Almanac? You know, I actually got my first copy of the World Almanac with a Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego's computer game back in the uh, early 90s. Okay, okay. <laughs> and the whole, the whole idea with that game was to use the World Almanac to look up things about the countries where Carmen Sandiego or one of her henchmen was escaping or something like that. And I did use it for that back then. Um, but what I remember it more as, along with using it for that game, is really just, you know, being a go-to resource for questions before we had the internet in my house. So uh, things like population statistics or information about states or cities you could find in there. It's only when I started working on it that I started to really dig in and find 
out just how much else was covered in the World Almanac. And certainly we've developed a lot of our subject material over the years. So it's not just statistics and yeah, population exactly. data. It's, you know, capsule histories of every country and state. It's sports statistics. Yeah. It's entertainment statistics. You've got it all in you there. Wouldn't, you wouldn't think of this because, you know, you, you think about it as a former teacher for 10 years and you take the kids to the library and how many of them go grab a world almanac, right? And and, and, you, mm-hmm. and you think, it, you think oh, I didn't know, it's replaced every year and it's all these different things and because we don't learn those things. But I like the, the Carmen San Diego uh, reference. What I think is really interesting, if I'm going to look at key points of a 2020 almanac it's the 2020 well first of all anything in 2020 we're never going to forget sarah that's for sure but when you talk about (laughs) we talk about the 2020 election okay this is really interesting i think this a lot of teachers can utilize these resources for sure involving just the 2020 election alone and the fact that this is really going into the facts and figures of really what happened absolutely and you know the world almanac is you know, always going to do that with its political coverage. We cover the entire election process. So everything from the primaries, which believe it or not, did take place in 2020. Even I wouldn't have thought that at all. Like yeah. That was yeah. No, yeah. a decade ago <laughs> to, you know, the actual, you know, campaign season to the results. We've got county by county results for the presidential election. We've got uh, congressional results and governor races results. And these are all preliminary results, of course, because some places are even still counting as we speak. But these are, you know, a way to look back at the whole election process and really get the facts and figures and the straightforward coverage uh, that can be harder to find elsewhere at some at some point this year. But this is kind of funny as a teacher when we taught the election. This is definitely a different one with mail and imbal- more mail mail balloting and uh, absentee balloting. More people voted before the election even occurred the day of the election than ever again. These are things or facts that really teachers can, and everyone can utilize. Right. And look at and say, oh, my gosh, I didn't really know this. Absolutely. This is a this is a great fact. Absolutely. Right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so many firsts were happening in this election. You know, like you said, record uh, early voting. A lot of uh, definitely record remote and mail-in ballots. And also, you know, record money was spent. (laughs) There were uh, a huge amount spent on both congressional races and the presidential level. Um, And that's before you even get into the local races and covering those. So there's a lot of really interesting information there that you're not necessarily going to get, you know, a, a news alert for on your phone. Um, but that actually does provide facts and figures that are really crucial to understanding just what took place in the 2020 election. And then we talk about the coronavirus. My gosh, this is something again. These are resources. And how many times do you get, you know, feedback from teachers and stuff about the almanac and how that how really they can utilize this in their instruction, especially at this time period, especially with being online and finding different resources and be able to research them and provide good lessons for this. We hear from teachers all the time that the almanac is helpful in their classroom just because so much is spent um, on, you know, media literacy, on understanding good sources. And we actually have a book here that everything is fact-checked. You know that you can refer your students to it and it can be trusted um, to be the facts, the answers, the statistics that students are looking for without really anything else. I mean, you know, the World Almanac covers so many different topics. 
but certainly the events of the day is a big part of what the World Almanac covers. And making sure that all of that is in there in a straightforward, easy to understand, easily digestible, um, you know, format is a really wonderful thing for teachers to have in their classrooms. Absolutely. 2020 uh, coronavirus. What kinds of things are we going to see in the World Almanac regarding, uh, I guess, something that we're never going to forget? And hopefully it won't be it'll be gone by the time the end of 2021 or at least a lot of the challenges that we dealt with in 2020. Absolutely. And hopefully we'll never know another pandemic like this one. Um, (laughs) I hope so, too. Covering covering this has been such a challenge and such an interesting uh, way to see how the World Almanac can really expand to change with the world. So we have a full feature on the science of the coronavirus pandemic in a very straightforward, uh, easy to understand manner. I don't know how much time you spend with, uh, you know, scientific or academic journals, but um, they're not always written for the layman, I have to say. I'm sure. We've got a really great, clear overview of the science behind coronavirus, but we also have data and graphics um, in that feature. And then separately throughout the book and all of the different topics that we cover from travel and tourism to economics to employment to education and how distance learning and remote learning is affecting people's you know educational experiences we have coverage of the coronavirus pandemic from that angle because you know this is a story that doesn't just exist on its own as a feature it also has percolated through all of these different realms of our lives um, including you know we have a huge sports section in the world almanac and obviously uh, just about every major sport, <laughs> professional and otherwise, saw huge changes and challenges this year. And so it's a topic that, of course, gets covered on its own as a news story, but also you see it sort of shape shift into all of these other areas that the World Almanac also covers. And we've been able to keep up with it in that way as well. See, all amazing things uh, definitely involved. Another thing that uh, we look at, you know, we talked about the World Almanac. Uh, the coronavirus, different coronavirus statistics, but all the different sports stuff. And uh, how many World Almanacs have you been the editor for, Sarah? So I actually started working for the World Almanac as an intern back when I was in college um, and then uh, started taking on more responsibility, ultimately got a full-time position when I graduated from college. Uh, So I've actually worked on 15 editions of the World Almanac and then some other, you know, World Almanac reference titles, including the World Almanac for Kids. Uh, So I've seen this book change quite a bit over the course of uh, almost a decade and a half now. There's there's definitely been some changes in the way that we do research um, in the volume of data that's available uh, to just in the, you know, global cloud universe you know there was when i first started doing research for the world almanac as an intern there were certain statistics that you could only get from calling someone and having them mail you the the data set and that certainly is not really the case in a 2020 world and it's been interesting to to watch that change and also to see how as the the global universe of data that we have access to has expanded how we can best focus it and provide you know the essential information for our readers 
Well, I appreciate you stopping by, Sarah. Where's the best place we can find information? I know we can purchase the Almanac uh, anywhere, especially online. But uh, where can we find info on you on the World Almanac and stuff? Where can we go? So, like you said, the World Almanac 2021 can be found wherever books are sold. You can go to your favorite retailer online or in person. Um, You can also go to worldalmanac.com or follow us on social media. Just search World Almanac. Well, Sarah, thanks for stopping by. And uh, great resources, definitely, that people need to check it out. And this will be unlike any other World Almanac you've edited. So let's hope next year's will just be an average one, not the craziness that we've dealt with, but probably another tough one, <laughs> but it'll be uh, hopefully a sign of happiness, right? How many vaccines and how we got the vaccine out to everyone. I mean, that's already, I'm sure in place and uh, that we'll, we'll find out and I'll definitely have you on next year. Okay. We're hoping for a lot of success stories to cover in, in the 2022 edition. That's for sure. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome, Sarah. Take care. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. You'll listen to Neil Haley's show, and we'll be back in just a moment. Celebrity slots. Free spin. Free to play mobile social slot games in the likeness of your favorite celebrities. Making money. Spin to win celebrity experiences through sweepstakes. Free to download. Free to play. Yeah, baby. What are you waiting for? Win meet and greets, celebrity merchandise, gift cards, and more. Download Celebrity Slots today. We're back to the Neil Haley Show on the Author's Corner segment. And I'm excited to welcome the program, Melissa De La Cruz, author of Never After, The 13th Ferry. Melissa, how are you? Oh, very good, Neil. Thank you for uh, having me. Absolutely. So let's kind of uh, delve into specifically enough your background. It's pretty fascinating, a lot of the writing you've done leading into, you know, writing books like this. But kind of tell us our back, your background. Sure. Um, I started out as a journalist in New York, and I was a, a beauty editor and a fashion editor, and I worked for a lot of magazines. I worked for Marie Claire and Harper's Bazaar, and I worked for Cosmopolitan, Teen Vogue, uh, the New York Times, uh, a lot of places. And I, But I always wanted to be uh, a novelist, and I sold my first book in 1999, and it came out in 2001, and it was an adult book. And then my editor said, hey, you know, there's this new genre called young adult. Would you like to try your hand uh, at writing a book in that genre? And as I was writing my first uh, book for younger readers, I thought, oh, my God, this is what I want to do. I love writing uh, in this voice, in this age range. And so Never After, I believe, is my 63rd book. And Holy it cow. is a new, yeah, <laughs> new series for uh, 9- to 12-year-olds. 63rd book you must have a paper and pencil available every second when you get ideas for books to write <laughs> you know funnily enough i i keep a lot of my ideas in my head uh, really? and i think about them for a really long time before i write anything down so by the time i write something down it's kind of fully formed uh and because you know you never know which ideas are actually going to be 
uh, a 300 page book. Sometimes, you know, it doesn't quite work out that way. Maybe it's just enough for a short story or something like that, or it's just not really a novel. So I like to kind of think about them for a long time and see if uh, they develop anywhere before uh, I write down anything. So when you think about that, when you talk about specifically enough, your audience, how do you think that audience, that's a challenging audience, Melissa, to really be, to think about what they're going to (laughs) like. You know, I think that uh, it's because I write for the kid and myself. You know, I remember what it was like to be that age, to be in middle school um, and to be 12 years old. And I think, uh, you know, uh, C.S. Lewis uh, actually said, you know, when you're writing for children, it's best not to think about um, writing for these amorphous blob of children. He said you should write for the kid in you or uh, a specific child. So I've had author friends who wrote their kids' books, you know, for uh, somebody's kid that they were very close to. It's almost like a personal story that they told to one child. I mostly write for myself, so I write for the kid that I used to be. Um, And that's kind of how I keep... uh, I think myself relevant to that age is really emphasizing and remembering what that was like. No, absolutely. So let's kind of get to the, your latest book, Never After the 13th Fairy. I understand you have a great background with fairy tales and uh, we all need fairy tales with COVID-19. We all need to know that there's going to be an end to this madness that we've lost lots of things. People don't see the specifically thing I think we've lost the most is our social ability with other people to connect with human beings. And video and audio are just not going to bring that connectivity of just being face-to-face, having coffee, sitting down, driving to a place, seeing a crowd of people together, getting to interact with multiple people. So we need a fairy tale to get us back to our life that we didn't think was a fairy tale, but now it seems like one. Absolutely. I mean, you know, we're never going to take that for granted again. Um, And like you mentioned, those two things are so important, you know, seeing friends, seeing people, uh, connecting with them. You know, it turns out that one of the pleasures in life is, you know, these very casual, uh, yet very, you know, meaningful, um, uh, things that we do, activities. Uh, one of the things that I used to do was meet up with a group of friends and we would go to spin class together. Yeah. And after exercising, we would all have coffee, which was, you know, just the most innocuous, ordinary thing, but it brought so much joy. You got to catch up with your friends, you know, for a little bit. Um, and now you can't do that. Uh, and then the other joy is just going to a plaza and seeing everybody out there, seeing yes. what people are wearing. Um, yeah, I mean it's 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 very sad. <laughs> we definitely need fairy tales at this time. Yeah, so your extensive knowledge of fairy tales, why? Um, you know, I think fairy tales are the first stories that we ever um, are told. You know, I, I definitely remember being, you know, three years old and my mom reading from a book of fairy tales, and then when I was seven, uh, my parents bought me this huge illustrated uh, fairy tale book that I devoured. And I remember that was one of the first books I could read on my own. Um, And, you know, they're kind of simple stories about good and evil, but, you know, they're very powerful. And one of the stories that always uh, intrigued me was the story of Sleeping Beauty because of this evil fairy, you know, who curses a a baby uh, because she wasn't invited to a party. And I just thought that was so fascinating, you know, because we certainly all felt that, 
you know, shame and anger at being excluded from something. <laughs> so I think we uh, very much relate to fairy tales. I think so, for sure. Let's talk about the book now. Sure. Um, Never After uh, features 12-year-old Philomena, who is a big fan of a fictional book series called Never After. And she goes to the bookstore to buy the 13th and final book in the story and uh, discovers that it's not being published. And nowhere around, the author disappeared. So she trudges back home, you know, very disappointed. And on her way home, runs into two characters from the book series. And they tell her that Never After is real, and she has to come with them um, oh, wow. to help save it. And so she is transported to this huge uh, fairy tale world, and it's about you know being an expert on a world, you know, because she was a a, a fan of of the story. So she gets there, and she knows more about it um, than people who live there. So I thought that would be kind of fun to explore. Definitely, it seems like it. And so uh, people, and you've had feedback. Is this a series? This book, the, the next part of the series, or is this, uh, a, uh, yeah. Yeah, it is a series. Uh, it was conceived as a series. Um, but, you know, publishers don't buy all the books in the series at once. They tend to buy them two at a time. Uh, I once had a book series that went to 19 books, but they only bought two at a time. Uh, and we finally got to 19. Uh, so in this series, uh, they have bought two. I am. Uh, I actually just finished the first draft of the second book, and hopefully there'll be two more, and hopefully more after that. But you know, uh, it depends on uh, whether there's an audience or whether the uh, publisher wants to keep publishing them. So it's not all in the author's hands, sadly. <laughs> Have you ever wanted uh, some of your book series to become TV shows or movies or something? Um, you know, it's it's interesting because. Uh, you know, everybody always says, oh, I, you know, you definitely want that. It seems like that's the dream for people. But I had a book series that I was in the middle of writing, and I actually turned down a lot of um, options and uh, people who wanted to turn it into something for Hollywood because I wasn't done writing the series yet. And I thought if I gave up the story now, you know, it would go on a different way on TV or it would affect the way I wrote it. And I really kind of wanted to keep the story to myself for a while so um but on the other hand you know uh knowing what i do now about uh the film and tv industry you know it takes so long for anything yes. to come to the screen and there's so many obstacles to it actually being made that you know um it's actually best to start just saying yes to get the you know to try to get the po project rolling because ultimately you know, it's not me who's going to stop it. There's going to be a hundred <laughs> other reasons why it doesn't get made. <laughs> ah, so, well, again, you, you learn from these, but again, I mean, 63 books, you get congrats and all the success you've had as an author and you keep on going. People can pick up the book where Melissa. Uh, they can pick them up anywhere. Books are sold. Uh, they're a target, Walmart, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, your local indie. Um, so wherever your favorite books are sold, it should be there. All right. Well, thanks for being on. And I mean, your passion for writing is amazing. Wow. How it developed. And uh, I wonder how many books you'll end up writing by the end of your career. Well, you're at 63 now and just keep cranking them up. Who knows? But I appreciate you coming by. We're back to the Neil Haley show and my guests again, somebody who likes to debate with me, likes to get into the controversial topics with me. Uh, Andrew Shackin. Andrew, what do you have for us today? 
Uh, I want to talk about the a development in the United States, which I am not happy about. And I think there's a lot of reasons for it. I'm going to tell you the reasons, ladies and gentlemen. You're not going to be happy with these reasons, but they're real reasons. Because uh, we live in a society where there's no longer a middle class. I mean, essentially. Let me review a bit. I wrote an essay in this book about this. It says on uh, faith, politics, culture, and philosophy. And uh, I, um, I, did, um, I did want to talk about middle class. Just give me a minute. You, but you don't think there's a middle class? One second, ladies. We want to talk about why we don't have the middle class. I'm trying to find out the, um, the section. Yeah, here it is. Okay. Uh, until, let me put it this way. Uh, we, have, we have to understand these historical developments as to why we do not have a middle class. Uh, before 1930, and before and Franklin D. Roosevelt, who I think was a very great president, a great person, personally for me, uh, we lived in a society of haves and have-nots. Right. And we lived in a predominantly rural society with a lot of people were basically poor. And I want to say that um, that was the case before 1930, but let me just go back a minute. When I was a young man, a young person, which is a while ago, I lived in Queens and I, um, my neighbors were a taxi driver with a couple of kids and a non-working wife and a plumber, again, with a couple of kids and a non-working wife. By today's standards, these people had a middle-class um, uh, standard of living, but they were, by today's standards, they would be considered poor, essentially. Yes. Okay. But, so what has happened? And as I say, before 1930, the United States was a, I think it was predominantly rural or largely rural. And there was, in fact, Neil, as anybody who has read uh, William Faulkner will come to know, he was a very great writer. I love him. Love William Faulkner. And um, he defined the extensive rural poverty in the United States. Now, why is it uh, we don't have middle class today? Well, there's a lot of reasons, Neil. Uh, for one thing, um, uh, the, after 1930, Franklin Roosevelt, who was a proponent and had concern for the working American, let people form unions, manufacturing unions. And these unions, um, there was a great struggle. And in fact, many people were killed forming this union, weren't they, Neil? Yes. They were attacked and um, big business didn't like it. Uh, but in fact, unions brought a lot of people into Is the it? middle class because it enabled them to earn enough money to support their families, okay? Second, uh, Franklin Roosevelt, again, I, I think he was an excellent president. He made reforms in our systems, very great reforms. He um, brought about such changes to social security, disability, unemployment insurance, workers' compensation, and others. And also, he, and it bristles me when our Southern neighbors are espoused perhaps the Republican platform, but he gave those people the Tennessee Valley Authority who had no running water and no electricity. You know that? Yes. So he helped people in the South immeasurably who were very poor. So 
Let me look at some. I'm looking at some reasons how the middle, how the middle class. We didn't have middle class war in 1930. It grew because of unions. Unions. I'm all a big fan of unions, Neil, because unions brought people yes. into the middle class, and also Franklin Roosevelt by his reforms and Social Security, and and disability insurance and workers' comp, etc. Unemployment insurance. They brought people to be able to survive and get some help to get into the middle class. No, yes, that's what he did. He cre- he created the middle class, and the unions were a big factor, don't you think? Yeah, they they definitely were. Yeah. So what what what's going on today? That uh, what happened, man, uh, ladies and gentlemen, that we don't have a middle class anymore? Well, I, I'm going to give some reasons. Uh, the um, a lot because of the um, the re- elimination of the unions and the ability to have job protection. Uh, we a lot of people have been pushed from middle class status to the lower socioeconomic group. And I say those people that I knew on my block, the taxi driver and the plumber, those people today would be pushed into the poorer classes, right. which is what has happened. Then also uh, outsourcing. Let me tell you about outsourcing, Neil. I don't know why big business, why doesn't big business outsource because they want profits, right? Right. And they get sweatshop labor in these poorer countries where, yes. where people are paid peanuts for the same work that an American worker would have to pay a regular wage. So by outsourcing, again, the American worker is displaced and, and pushed into effective poverty, correct? Because of the global society, yes. Global society, yeah. But you have to understand that um, these same people uh, had wanted child labor in 1910. They wanted kids, they had 12-year-old kids working in, in factories. Well, that's the same thing. When they, when they outsource to these, these low benefits, low, low-wage places, they're using child labor, aren't they? Yeah. It depends. So it just were, depends. It just depends on what you're outsourcing to a country, but well, yes, for sure, for sure, they're not getting paid. But in, also, we our jobs today. There's a big problem. Yes. Let me say something else. There's a big problem in our society for job security and obtaining employment. We live in a society of no benefits, no pensions, uh, and no job security. People come and go like they're rats in a trap, okay? It's all profits, okay? And and the the system has been created where people can't get a job. And let me tell you this, Neil, they don't last in the workforce until until 40, and then they're out. Right. Exactly. So So what kind of a system is this? Uh, We have a system where forces, forces are creating a non-middle-class society, correct? Correct. They're outsourcing things. They're putting, they, by outsourcing, they are putting American workers out of work. By creating no it's pension, it's, no benefit system, they're right, putting but, well, people why would out a business of work. Not, a business would do this based on not be paying too much in taxes in, in, at home. So there's different reasons why they're doing it. Well, because that is, as I said, Neil, in my previous, uh, I did uh, look at, talk about it in the video. Our country is based on business and commerce, and business and commerce knows no humanity. 
It's all money and profits. Right. Period. You think that's good? No. Would you like to see it changed? I don't know how you change it, Andrew. Uh, so uh, that's the thing. Uh, the Franklin Roosevelt brought about a reform in this system that he created through the use of unions and social network and giving people help. He created a middle class. And I'm pretty sure I didn't live then before 1930. I think our society consisted of a it was a non middle class society, wasn't it? Yeah, it was basically the haves and have nots. Correct. Well, let's take a look at the facts going on, ladies and gentlemen. We live in a society today which resembles and is going backward in, in its values and in its thinking to the pre-1930s, correct? Right. So um, why is it we, as I say, we claim, as I said previously, we claim, many people claim to be a Christian country. I don't think so. No. I mean, that, that, that's what we talked about before based on wealth. If you look at wealth and power, we're not a Christian country. If people are looking to become TikTok famous, Instagram famous, Facebook famous, it's all about famous and power. So I agree. I agree with you completely on that. What do you think of this? I don't, I don't understand this. What is a celebrity? Defining a celebrity is somebody who is popular, well known, and has a great following. How do you get to be a celebrity? Don't you think that getting to be a celebrity is a function of getting money? No. Uh, views, money could be part of it, but views and all that stuff. So, so based on what you're saying, Andrew, in, in so uh, many ways, there's no middle class. Define it why there's no middle class. Show not anymore. Well, how, how isn't there? Well, what, because... We have permitted a situation, as I say, this is what President Trump come into this country. He was right. I'm not backing down to this position. A person's illegally here and I'm going to to be here. And they are here because I think because certain elements of our business sector wants this cheap labor. And this cheap labor puts Americans out of work. Correct? Yes, definitely. So the, we live in a society where there are forces, obvious forces, real forces, real factors, making it impossible to get a job that lasts, correct? Yes, definitely. So do, don't we live in a society where a person can't get a job to support his family? That's true. That's definitely true. So what do you think about that? You think it's good? I don't think so. no. I don't. I don't think it's a. I don't think it's a good thing. I think it's a bad thing, and we have to uh, figure out in so many ways why people have to work two, three jobs to be able to support. Why do we have to live in the most great neighborhoods because of the poverty? Wherever you go, where the poverty is more crime. There's so many different areas and aspects. But as we look at, we're not a work hard working country. We have a lot of people that don't work hard, do not get educated well. And that's probably why. But I wanted to get before we finished, Andrew, the numbers. How do you say we don't have a middle class? What are the because, different because we had briefly a society between 1940 and 1955 or 60, where a person could obtain employment 
stable employment and support their families on that income with a non-working wife. That is not so anymore. And you know it. We know that, but that's because where the money's going. So that's something to look at in our next time. Andrew, I appreciate you stopping by. Shackinshow.com for more information. We got it. I want a system where people have every opportunity to support their families. So you talk about spreading the wealth then? I'm talking about having a system where a person can get a job. A very good point. A a living wage job. Okay, Andrew, I appreciate you stopping by. We'll talk next time. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Rob Roselli Show. And I'm excited to welcome the program, Rob Roselli. Rob, how are you? How are things? I'm good, I'm good Neil. Not can't complain. How are you? Good. Well, you know, we got through Thanksgiving. We're in December, amazingly enough, uh, amid uh, COVID-19 and now the vaccine, Rob. And you've always been concerned when it comes to a vaccine. Yeah. Now, what I what I've been reading, and first of all, before I forget, don't forget the website boxupsunglasses.com and God's simple salvation plan. If I forget to mention that, I know we get into these discussions sometimes, but those are probably two most important things to get out of this interview. But you asked about the vaccines, and that's covered. The precedent for this vaccine was the AIDS virus. Okay, which was dis- disseminated with the smallpox vaccine in Africa in the mid 1980s, and also through the hepatitis B vaccine to the American uh, gay population here in the United States to, in five cities. I think it was New York, San Francisco, St. Louis, Los Angeles, Atlanta, maybe. From but that's that's just basic ep- epidemiology of, of the virus. Okay, that, that's just how it broke out. And I know, obviously, that sounds, people will say, oh, that's crazy, this and that. But that's, that's, that's based on my research, okay? And that's covered in the Un-American Genocidal Complex, uh, which is my second book, and that's available on the website. And that's all documented. Okay, people will say that's crazy. but So the precedent is there, but it's, it's fully backed up with, with government documents and requests for the AIDS virus and, and what it actually was. It was not a green monkey disease. Okay, so you're seeing a lot of the same patterns with this COVID virus that you see with the AIDS virus. Okay, so in other words, with the AIDS virus, it was supposedly a green monkey in Africa, and that's what started it. But based on my research, it was no way related to a green monkey. It was just a big lie. Okay, as I mentioned, the epidemiology made no sense in in that context, just like we have here. Okay, and it appears that this COVID virus originated from the Wuhan um, Chinese military uh, biological research laboratory in the Wuhan province. Okay. So remember the lie, it came out of a, of a what, some kind of wet animal market or whatever it is they right. do over there in China. And that turned out to be a lie. So we have the same pattern. Okay. But now what they're looking to do is disseminate a vaccine, which is largely unproven. And based on my research, it's a vaccine to be a hundred percent avoided as since it doesn't have any of the, the virus particles in it. And, and let me just back up for a second and say vaccines in general are, are, are more akin to raw sewage than they are to anything healthy. Okay, the vaccine industry is one evil industry. And if you really want to get more information, I highly suggest Mike Adams. 
a natural news website for research on vaccines, okay? But I'll just say in general that the vaccines, I mean, you have virus particles, detergents, thimerosal, mercury, okay? If you read the ingredients that goes into a lot of these vaccines, it reads more like the ingredients for raw sewage than, than anything that's healthy for the human body. Now, based on the research I've been doing, okay, things like zinc, uh, budesonite, yeah. and, and, and other things like that, and hydroxychloroquine, I think yes. is the name of it. I'm pronouncing that right. Yeah, one of my, one of my clients wrote a book on hydroxychloroquine and uh, how it's again being hidden when it really is a great uh, prophylactic that can stop uh people from getting COVID-19 and that but it's not going to make the money as big pharma will make off this vaccine yeah and that that's exactly the point okay well that's that's part of the point actually is that they're they're pushing this vaccine and they're pushing it and pushing it but it's, it hasn't really been tested okay and I, and I, I guess December 10th they're going to start putting out the first the first doses of this vaccine and I'm not sure where it's going to go and everybody's oh you know the vaccine the vaccine and then the other issue is is the COVID-19 virus is it really that that potent in other words another research that I've done is that it's no more potent than a really bad flu okay and the survival rate is 99.7 percent in other words 0.3 percent of the people that actually die from it and I'm not minimizing those deaths at all Okay, but death is part of life. Death is part of the diseases, and what and what they're not accounting for with all these lockdowns is the economic distress and the suicide rates and all the distress that can't necessarily be quantified directly, which is which is much worse than the actual deaths that are being brought about by COVID nineteen, especially in light of the fact that, I, as we just talked about, you know, two minutes ago, there are there are cures. There are alternative cures to the vaccine. So the vaccine is obviously being pushed for an, I guess the point is the vaccine is obviously being pushed for an ulterior motive other than people's health. Okay. And it, and it's really, it's really a, a, a potentially dangerous vaccine from what I've been reading. It's a, in the messenger RNA vaccine. Okay. So basically what it's doing is it's instead of, I mean, the, the concept of vaccines, so the theory is, is that, you know, you put the, the weakened version of the virus into somebody's blood, it forces the human immune system to build antibodies to the, to the virus. So when, when the real virus hits later on, if it hits that person, the antibodies are already in place and, and your, your immune system is ready to go. I mean, that's the theory, but this vaccine doesn't have any of that. Supposedly, from what I understand, it has a, it's a messenger RNA vaccine, which means it actually interrupts or gets into the genetics of the cell. It produces proteins that are, and I'm not, I don't know if you could job explaining this, but, and it, and it produces antibodies in the, that way, instead of producing them, instead of having antibodies directly. So in other words, it interrupts the genetics of the cell. And once you get in to the human cells with this, okay, the, the effects of the vaccine are irreversible. So it's a very dangerous vaccine from what I'm reading. And I and again, I'm not doing a great job explaining it. I highly suggest, you know, Mike Adams naturalnews.com website for more information on on the vaccine and why you should not be taking it. Okay. 
and I probably just made the government watch list because I'm now I'm an anti-vaxxer or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, it's going to be interesting if, you know, if, again, there's no chance of President Trump winning, it looks like, even though some people still are not. What are your thoughts? Are you giving up hope on this whole thing? It, somehow it'll be overturned in the courts? Well, you know, as far as that goes, so now we got the vaccine. Now we're going over to another, another subset of craziness, and that's the election. Okay, and I, I believe, no, I, I believe Trump has something up his sleeve. Okay, Trump, Trump's, Trump's has a, has like 150 IQ. I think he's way smarter than the people he's dealing with. The people he's dealing with, as far as the election fraud, have gotten very careless. Okay, and I think there's more information will be coming out in the next several weeks. I, I don't. I think Trump is has got something up his sleeve, and we talked about this a little bit last week. Okay, in, in terms of uh, I don't know if you have time to develop this right now. Yeah, I'm trying it, to keep these shows topic to talk about. This could be another show to talk about. Trump. Basically, vaccine, I, yeah, for sure, is something we have to really. I, I think. Yeah, I, I well, just to answer your question, I I think Trump has something up his sleeve, and that he'll be over the next several weeks. More information is going to come out as to how blatant this fraud actually was. Now, whether he'll be able to overturn. The, the magnitude of the fraud, I don't know, but I believe that he'll expose these these deviants, these cheaters for what they are, and he'll sure make a go of it. And I wouldn't be surprised if he does does pull this off and, and be sworn in as the next president. Okay, and that gets into the, we talked about this a little bit last week, I believe that's a deadly political head wound. And I believe that's the political head wound talked about in Revelation 13. I'll just come out and say it if people are familiar with it. Which means, well, which means a deadly head wound's going to recover and, and Trump will be gone after that. But that's probably reaching into another. Maybe we can talk about that more next week. Um, as far as that goes. Um, but um, to answer your question, though, I, I believe there's a lot more to come out of this. I mean, and the press already has Biden sworn in as president and he's picking his cabinet and his administration, and it's all a done deal. I don't think that's the case. Even Fox News is jumping on the bandwagon and kind of throwing Trump under the bus and not really reporting on on a lot of this and what's going on. But no, I, I, I believe it's going to be way bigger than, than people expect. The information that's going to be coming out over the several weeks, that's just my feeling. All right. And uh, last week we talked about right the, the book of Job. So people need to look back at the book of Job from last week's episode. And uh but the vaccine has to take front and center because if somehow in some way president by uh, president elect, if he's president elect Biden becomes president of the United States, there's going to be a mandatory mandatory vaccine. So there's, again, there's nothing good about these vaccines. And that's going to be interesting to see what happens. So Rob, I appreciate you stopping by box sunglasses.com and really good topic to, for people to go look and check out. Take care. Uh, Okay, Neil. Talk to you next week. All right. That was the Robert Sully Show, guys. Take care.